Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. This morning we want to turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. This will probably be our final sermon in this series. Uh, We have been part of a project and still are where we are trying to pay for having Wycliffe Bible translators translate the Gospel of John for the Connie people or the Connie people. And uh, so we have been preaching from John and God has blessed it by helping us to understand how important the book is and today I want us to go to at least one more passage in John chapter 13 beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover Jesus knowing that his hour had come. We talked about that last week. So many times he said my hour's not yet come but Then finally in chapter 12, he says, no, my hour has come. I am headed to the cross. Knowing his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And in the original language, it's pretty indignant the way he says it. And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand it hereafter. And Peter said to him, never will you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, then Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Now, just a quick note, Peter thought, oh, he is washing my sins away. It's not what he's doing. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but well, not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again he said to them do you know what I have done to you you call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am if then the Lord and the teacher though washes your feet you ought to wash 
one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. We are in what we call the week of the Passion. This week is the week that Jesus, setting the passage in context, it's the week that Jesus will go to the cross. On Sunday of this week, he had entered Jerusalem. We all remember that, the great triumphant entry and the singing and praising of Hosanna. And then on Monday, he cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, he will go over to the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he will teach them. We call that the Olivet Discourse. On Wednesday, we are not sure what he did. But on Thursday is when he washes the feet of the disciples. On Friday, of course, he is crucified. And on Saturday... Of course, they place the guards around the tomb. And then, of course, on Sunday, praise God, the guards all lost their jobs. But we're on Thursday. And Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. I love this because it's a great example of how you read all four gospel accounts. We've taught here for years. How many gospels are there? There is one. But there are four accounts of the gospel, and if you read all four accounts, in Luke chapter 22, you will see something important. Right before this happens, the disciples have been in an argument about which one of them is the greatest. They are inside of the cross, so to speak. It's just a few days away, and yet they are in an argument about which one of them might be the greatest. And so Jesus basically says, well, if you desire greatness, let me show you what that would look like. Let me show you how you really attain that. And, and, and let me just tell you, this is an odd occurrence because usually feet were washed before the meal. But Jesus, and I believe this with all my heart, gave every one of them a chance to go and pick up that basin and wrap that towel around himself and wash the feet. But none of them did. So after they had all eaten, Jesus wraps the towel around himself and he begins to wash their feet. I mean you got to be thinking by this time, if you're one of his disciples, and, and these are some questions that we ask. I'm not sure we're going to like the answers Jesus is going to give us today, but sometimes maybe uh, we ask even ourselves, well, when is enough enough? I mean, you know, we see the basin over there and all of that, but we, we have already left our families behind, and we've already done all kinds of things. We've become enemies with people that we used to be friends with, and, and we've left our lives behind and all of that. And, and so maybe they're asking questions like we ask, again, how, how far am I expected to go? Or what expectations should I have of those whom I serve? I mean, 
They ought to do something, you know. What prerequisites or boundaries? Boy, that's a popular word nowadays, boundaries. Should I set prior to serving others? And just how vulnerable and available should I be to people? You know, some will take advantage of you. And maybe all, last of all, how should I discriminate as to who will appreciate and glorify God with the time and effort that I have offered them? All of those are questions that sometimes we ask, and when we do, we're as foolish as the disciples trying to figure out who is the greatest while their Savior is headed to the cross. We don't have a lot of examples in our world, it seems, in modern times of, uh, of great uh, obedience and sacrifice, but I shared with the men on Wednesday night about a Japanese soldier, and I want to share it with all of you this morning. Hiro Onada is his name. Uh, we have a picture of him, I think. He was in the Imperial Japanese Army, and he was taken to the island of Labang, and he was put there. It's in the Philippines, and he was placed there by his commanding officer. And his commanding officer told him and the other soldiers, you stay here until I return. Do not leave. He says, do not surrender, but do not kill yourself. Some of them would do that. He says, you've got to fight. So you stay. And you don't leave this place until I come back and tell you to leave. Well, the war ended in 1945 on September the 2nd. But it didn't end for them because Onada and these other soldiers <laughs> believed that, no, it's still going on. And, and so uh, not only did the Japanese do it, we did it as well. We dropped leaflets in those islands there in the South Pacific to try to contact these uh, soldiers that we had heard were left behind and, and did not know that the war was over. And, and, and so Onada got these leaflets. But now this is a sharp dude. He had studied philosophy and he had studied propaganda and he had studied psychology and he was a guy that was very suspicious and he said, I saw mistakes in the writing on the leaflets and, and I didn't believe them. And then they dropped whole newspapers that said, the war is over. But he did not believe it. Over time, some of those who were with him died and others of them left. I think one or two were killed and finally there was no one left but Hiro Onada. That was 1945, 1955 came and went, and he was still there. 1965 came and went, and he was still there. March the 7th, 1974, was when he finally walked out. And the reason he walked out, he had been declared dead in 1959. Nobody hardly believed he was alive, but there was a young college student back in Japan named Norio, uh, or Norio uh, Suzuki. And Suzuki said that I've read his story. I don't believe he's dead. And he went to Labang Island and he went back there to the caves where uh, Onada was staying and he found him. And he talked to him and he said, good news, the war is over. You can come out. And, and Onada said, I won't. 
He said, my commanding officer told me, you stay here until I come back and tell you you can leave. He said, I will not leave until he returns. Fortunately, his commanding officer was still alive. By now, it's been 29 years. He's selling books in Japan. But they see to it to fly him to Labang Island, and he goes back in there to these caves as his commanding officer, and he tells Hiru Onara, he says, the war is over. I officially relieve you of your command. You can see his uniform's full of patches. It's almost rotted off of him by now. He came out of there with a rifle that was operational. He had 500 rounds of ammunition and some hand grenades. He killed about 30 people in those 29 years, Filipinos who dared to venture back to where he was, and, and he took their life. And, and so he didn't know what his future was like, but he knew that he had served, and he knew that he had kept his promise, and he obeyed orders, and he didn't come out until his commanding officer came in and told him that he could. His uniform, they said, was as spiffy as it could possibly be to have been worn that many years. He had a sword that he presented to uh, Ferdinand Mor uh, 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 Marcos. Thank you. Ferdinand Marcos was now the president of the Philippines. And he pardoned him because he knew that your story is so incredible. You kill these people, but I'm going to pardon you because you really thought you were still fighting a war. And for that, he hands his sword over. There's pictures of him giving his sword to Ferdinand Marcos as a gift of appreciation for being pardoned. He had a dagger with him. It was as sharp and as polished as his sword after all these years. His dagger was given to him by his mother when he first joined the army. And she said, instead of surrender, take this and kill yourself first. It must have been a magical moment with his mother. <laughs> but that's how they thought. And that's how they felt. Oh, he finally comes out. Twenty Nine years later, he only died in, I, I did a bunch of research on him. I was so interested in him. He died in 2014. He was uh, 91 years old when he passed away. An incredible story of dedication. Now, when I shared this with the men the other night, I asked them a question, why? And the reason is simple. It's not simple in our culture, but it is in theirs. One, they are a shame-based culture. I understand that. And honor is a big thing. And I, I wish it was a bigger thing in our country. But it was a big thing for them. But another problem, and the biggest problem that he had, was his commanding officer worked for the emperor. And they believed in World War II that the emperor was divine. And he believed that my commanding officer represents God. And when he tells me to stay, I will stay. And I will not leave. And I don't care what I read in the paper. I don't care what I read on the leaflets. None of that matters. I was given a command by my commanding officer himself. And I will stay here until I either die or the war is over. 
God left us here. And, and he's telling the disciples, he's trying now as, as to, to get them prepared for his departure. He knows he's going back to the Father. We read last week in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John how he prayed for himself, and then he prayed for his disciples, and then he prayed for you and I. He prayed for all of those that would come to know him and serve him because of the message of his disciples. I know they kind of got it mixed up in the epistles. They thought the Lord was coming back any day. But Jesus seems to indicate in his prayer in John 17, I won't be back for a while. There'll be lots of folks who think I'm never coming back. And when they least expect it, one of these days, I will show up. He says, Father, take care of those at Cornerstone Fellowship. That's in the Greek. You have to take care of those who will be serving me years from now. Maybe they've grown weary and maybe they've read and heard all kinds of things contrary to what I've told them. God take care of them. Now we might not all leave at the same time. I think about the Apostle Paul when he told Timothy in 2 Timothy, he told him, he said, look, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm fixing to go. I'll go before you do. He says, I fought a good fight. He says, I have kept the faith. I have finished the course, and now I'm going home. Now I'm going home. Man, those words are so awesome. And and others have gone home. And some of you, you, you may go home before the rest of us. But the day will come one day when our commanding officer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will come to us and say, it's over. The war is over. It is ended. I have been victorious, and he already has been, of course, on the cross. But the day will come when things like you and I are worried about right now and that we see going on in the world the day will come when God stands to his feet and said enough is enough and it's over in the meantime though he has left us here just what is involved now he's taught them something here he says you're going to have to serve one another you're going to have to learn to knock off this business of which one of you is the greatest and learn that the one that will be the greatest is the one who can serve the most I am the head of the church Jesus said but I'm the head of the church because I sacrificed more than anybody so how is it then what is involved then serving one another. He says you're going to have to learn how to do it. You won't make it if you don't. You're going to have to learn how to do for each other what I have done for you. Number one, and I don't know if we'll get through all of these today or not, doesn't matter, but number one, a passionate commitment. That's one thing it'll take. In verse one it says, having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. Loving like we have been loved is hard to comprehend. It's much harder to do. To love others like Christ has loved us. Aren't you glad when you went to Christ and asked for salvation, when your sins were many, but His mercy was more? Aren't you glad He didn't look at you and go, well, you know, this is a, the second time, same sin. Now, you know, we need to talk. It's probably the 700th time same sin for some of us. 
What if he had looked at us and said, well, I don't know. I want you to be responsible with what I give you. And, I, and you just don't even seem to even care. I don't think you appreciate what I, I don't mind doing for people. Boy, I can just hear us now. And we think it is so Christian to say, I don't mind helping people if they're willing to help themselves. And I don't mind doing this, that, and the other. If they, you know, understand and have some appreciation for it. I mean, that's the least they could do. Is that how Jesus treated you when you went to Him? I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's not easy. And I'm pleased. Don't sit there and think, yeah, well, you must have it together. I don't. I don't. I say some of those same things. That's how I, I, I knew about all of them so well. In wealthier homes, had they been in one of those that day when Jesus washed the, their feet, there, there might have been a servant. That, it wasn't in all Jewish homes, but they would have a servant who would do this before the guest ate. Would go around and wash everybody's feet. In wealthier Jewish homes, they would have a Gentile do it. And I want to tell you that because it was the lowliest job you could possibly have. These feet were nasty. This was not some ceremonial kind of thing. No, they were nasty. And so when... when the, the, some of the homes would have a Gentile servant. They didn't know his name. You didn't say his name. You didn't acknowledge him. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jews said Gentiles were only created by God to keep the fires of hell going. And to wash dung off our feet. It was a lowly position. <laughs> I'm sure the disciples thought, wow, this house doesn't have a servant. Most of the houses didn't. And I'm sure Jesus would have looked at them and said, no, this house didn't seem to have a servant. It only had disciples and it only had preachers and it did have apostles in it and, and miracle workers and future church planners and missionaries. It had all that in it today. But no, I have to agree with you. There didn't seem to be a servant in the house. So I got up and I did it myself. For you. Wow. I mean, you think about it. Maybe again, the disciples there, just like us, they're, they're flesh and blood, and, and they've already done a, a lot. I mean, think about it. If you're keeping score, they fed, led, cast out, raised up, rode all night, followed Jesus from here to Timbuktu, and, and maybe they're thinking, you know what, it's, it's time somebody else over there did a little something. I, mean, I don't mind helping out, but my goodness. I'm not the only one around there. Before we move to our next point, I want to tell you a little story that I'm certain must have originated in church. It's called The Great Dilemma. You may have heard it before. I think I've shared it here. It involves four people. They're named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and the one named everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. And it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could do. If that didn't happen in church, it didn't happen at all. Passionate.
commitment. Secondly, personal contact. Jesus is not anointing their head with oil. He's washing their nasty feet. You know, this would have been a great time maybe for a parable. Of course, you know there are no parables in John. Maybe Jesus could have just taught them a lesson and said, well, there was a man one day that was the head of a household and he had guests who came and had no servant to wash their feet, so he washed them. No, he didn't say a word. He, he lived this parable in front of them. And, and, and boy, he touched their nasty feet, personal contact. I, I'm telling you, he touched some things on their feet that... You and I might not even like to think about because you got to realize in that time, it's still like it is in a lot of third world countries. They build fences around their houses and the animals just run wild. So you either have a couple of inches of pure dust that dries powder or you have a foot of liquid mud and then mixed in with all of that mud is the sheep and the oxen and the, all the other animals that are not properly trained and you step in all of that as well Jesus touched all of that touched all of it that personal contact is important you know I've seen church leaders before who didn't really understand that personal contact thing too much and they would grow so frustrated why doesn't someone come to my meeting and and why doesn't someone like my class or why didn't they take on my idea and and why did somebody not call me back or or whatever it was that their idea was and they just couldn't believe it because it was a great idea and it might have been a great idea but I want to tell you people don't follow ideas people follow people and unless you have been willing to touch their heart in life, they may not follow you anywhere. There's an old saying, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's what people follow. And, and I, I tell you the reason for it before we move on. We are created in the image of God. And you remember that God related to himself very intimately as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And within that relationship that we were made in the image of God, it was very relational, very intimate. As a matter of fact, look at Jesus. When he was on the earth, it says he was led by the Spirit. He never looks at the Spirit and goes, hey, you know, you and I are the same thing. I got as much authority as you. Jesus was in the garden praying, I pray that this cup might pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. All of that is happening within God himself. So he's relational. He created us in his image and therefore we respond more to what people do than what people say. Passionate commitment, personal contact, possible contamination. You'll just have to forgive me for the alliteration. It's a sickness. I, I take medication for it. It's not working, is it? Possible contamination. The feet was the part of these disciples that had touched the world. I know I'm making an analogy here, but... That's what touched the earth the most. Your feet make more contact with this planet than any other part of your body. Now, there's some science for you right there. 
That's where they get dirty. And sometimes when you're helping people, you get involved in people's lives and you get to the point that you are willing to do whatever it takes to love them the way Jesus loved you. Sometimes you get on you some of what they got on them. I'm not saying they cause you to sin, but sometimes you have to be willing to put your arms around somebody that smells like 10 miles of bad road because he's not had a bath or an opportunity for one in maybe years, and and you've got to hug that old sweaty, stinking person. And and sometimes you might have to go some places that you normally don't go, and and you might have to get involved with some people that, that you wouldn't exactly invite over for dinner, but maybe we should. Sometimes we need to risk a little bit of that contamination. Doesn't mean you have to condone the behavior, but I want to tell you something, man. We're so worried about condoning the behavior, we don't know how to love most of the time. We don't know how to do anything. We are at such a distance from all of that, and I can tell you our lack of love is obvious when we're that way. One of my favorite New Testament scholars is William Barclay. He says the, 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 the most important verse, the most profound verse in all of the New Testament is in Matthew 8, verse 3, where it says, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper. People didn't touch lepers. You didn't get close to lepers. You didn't get downwind to a leper. And it was his responsibility to make sure you didn't. He had to cry unclean. He had to advertise his wretched condition well before you got there to take care of you. It was the law. He couldn't hang around other people. And people would avoid them like the plague because to them, that's what it was. And it's amazing to me now, science has taught us that a lot of the kinds of leprosy they had was not even contagious, but they didn't know it. Don't want that on me. Jesus had some miracles from a distance and he had some what we call touch miracles. I'm going to guess he touched this leper more for you and I than for him. He touched the leper. Passionate commitment, personal contact, possible contamination, painful circumstances. Verse 11 says he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. But he still washed his feet. Man. Is that not something? If we had written this story or lived this story, surely right here, we would have been wondering why did Jesus mysteriously skip the feet of Judas? What was it about him that Jesus knew that the rest of us didn't know? There was a whole lot of things about him Jesus did know that his own disciples had not figured out. When Jesus told them, says, yeah, by the way, all this time that we've been together for these three years, one of you is not of me, you are of the devil. And they're all looking at each other going, well, I wonder which one of us it is. I bet it's you. They had no clue. They had no clue, but Jesus did. And he washed his old sorry feet anyway. I, I, I hate 
what the Catholic Church has done with this. They've made the baptism one of the sacraments, and part of it is based on this passage. And my question in all of that is if, well, being, uh, have Jesus putting water on you, if that would save you, then why didn't it save Judas? Yeah, too much common sense for some folks. I can just tell you, 2 Peter 3.18, I'll read this and we'll move on. We're admonished, you and I, to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a lot of times we grow in knowledge, but not so much in grace. Not so much in grace. We come to church and we say, God, I want to be fed. I, boy, that was good deep preaching there. And, 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 and we have our favorite pastors. Boy, they're solid, rock solid in their doctrine, man. They, they, got, they, they lay it out there how it is. And boy, we, we like that. And, and we love the ones where their doctrine matches up with our doctrine. I tell you, bless God, that's how I believe it. Like that matters. But we don't grow too much in grace sometimes. Don't grow too much in grace. Passionate commitment, personal contact, possible contamination. If you get tired of me reading, you just put your hands over your ears. I don't blame you. Painful circumstances. How about some potential confusion? Verse 7 after Peter says, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And then when he starts thinking, oh, this is how we're going to get our sins washed away. He says, I want you to wash all of me. i got sin everywhere. Whew, smell that sin. Get that off of me, God. And Jesus says, got to be by then. And I am paraphrasing, but he's got to be like, oh, my goodness. If I have to do this again, I'm going to pick 12 that are smarter than these. amazing after all he went through with them that he chose us but he did but he did it was a pretty indignant remark it made no sense to him what Jesus was doing I, I, I just want to say this there's some things in scripture that don't make sense and that is the wall that keeps a lot of people from ever accepting Jesus Christ. I, I guess is your assumption, if, if you're listening this morning to the podcast, it, it, if there's something that doesn't make sense, well, does it make sense to you that the creator of the universe would have washed their feet? That doesn't make sense either. It's almost like some of the things that... that, that should be harder for us to grasp like God loves us. How do we ever get past that one? We're like, well, you know, when I study the deoxyribonucleic acid and all of the intelligent design and this, that, and the other, there's some things about God I do we just don't understand. How do we ever get past, why does he love us? Why would he ever even care about us? Let me just ask you this, what has he gotten out of it so far? He just loves us. We talked Wednesday night about the love he loves us with. His agape 
love. It's, it's, it's not just a degree of a supersonic love. No, it's the nature that makes agape love special. Phileo, is, uh, there's some reciprocation there because that's brotherly love. Eros is a, an attracted kind of love uh, where you see something and you're drawn to it, whether it's sexually or, or maybe a cute puppy. Oh, my goodness. You, you, you just said uh, the, the Eros. That's Eros that, that you're feeling. And then when he's grown and a wet dog and lands in the middle of the bed, then it's agape that keeps you from killing him. There was a, another one called Stergo. We don't really find it in the Greek New Testament, it or Eros, but it was a family kind of love. But agape, it's not special just because, boy, it's more powerful. It's special because it expects nothing in return. There's nothing about the object that drew that love to it. God didn't see you. I hate to break your heart. It's going to kill you maybe. I don't know. I hope not. We have a doctor here with us today. You can help him. He didn't choose you because he thought you would really be a whiz-bang Christian. I know. Give you a moment. He didn't love you because he thought, man, how cool would it be? We say these things all the time. I wish we could get oh so-and-so in church. And that, that is how we say it, just like that. Ooh, he can sing. Have you heard him sing? He sings down there at the Let's All Get Drunk and Fight on Saturday nights. I wish, woof, we could get him saved and get him in church. That voice, woof. I wonder if God's in heaven going, yeah, I got angels up here that can sing some, but not like him. But I'd love to get him. God doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need any of us. Last of all, there's a powerful commandment that he leaves us with. Verse 17, you are blessed. You're blessed if you do this. Not if you know it. A lot of things we know we don't do. Not if you talk about it. Not if you discuss it theologically. Not if you can diagram it in the Greek. No, he says you're blessed if you do it. You're blessed if you do it. Our church, sometimes in our churches and especially in our world, but sometimes even in our churches, we have this spirit of competition and and criticism, we're hard on each other. And, and sometimes we might not say that we're kind of competing to see who is the greatest, but you let a little bit of significance maybe go toward one person that maybe someone felt like they should have gotten. And there's something inside of us that just goes off and our, our sinful depravity begins to bubble up. It's sad when that happens. We've been left here. We've got a job to do, friend. We've got to be light in this darkness. And we're not going to do it if we're sitting here fighting each other. Somebody says that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its own. And we do sometimes. You know, I'd have to tell you that honestly... The harshest things I've ever had said to me that hurt me the deepest 
came from church people. I, I was a little wild at one time in my life. Not, I grew up fast and hard, so this started for me early on because I went into ministry when I was 20 years old, so, or I was 19, about to turn 20 the next month. But I, I, I ran with some kind of rough folks. <laughs> But I got to tell you something, meanest people I ever met in my life, I met them in the last 42 years. I never seen anything like it in my life. It almost, Islam helped me with this, really, it did. What could make a person fly a plane into a building knowing it's going to kill them and other people? What'll make them do that? How much? What's, what has? What do you have to have to have that level of hatred and want to get back at someone so badly? Well, you just need to be vindicated or feel vindicated by God, and that's what makes religious people the meanest people. We feel like we got a right to say something because we're right with God, and they are not. We're the saints, and they're the ain'ts. If they just get right with God, be the best thing happen to them. You can see I can do it. Not only have I seen it done, I've done it. I've gotten on my high horse a few times. I forgot to love like I've been loved. I forgot to forgive like I've been forgiven. If God put the conditions on his forgiveness for me that I have put on other people sometime, I can tell you I'd be in hell right now. And so would you. You don't look at God and say, God, I need your forgiveness. And him go, well, don't know. How many times is this? You lost count. He hadn't. He still forgives. We've been left behind, friend. He's coming back one day. Boy, I hope it's soon. I hope it's soon. I, I, I don't think I've ever said this in a sermon. But if we're all alive next week, I hope to see every one of you back here. That's the kind of world we live in right now. We got some crazy stuff going on. I, I pretty much think we will be, but you and I, we live in a dark world, and we're called to be light in that darkness. When I saw those Ukrainian Christians singing praises to God down there in that bomb shelter, wow! It's so awesome. It's so incredible. Just, it moved my heart. God's left us here. And one of the things that's going to keep our light shining is if we learn how to love each other the way we have been loved. Let's pray. God, I ask you to help us, Lord. We can barely fathom what we talked about today. 
We can't wrap our mind around, not fully, Lord. We can't intellectually process the creator of the universe washing dung off the disciples' feet. One of them that is a liar and a deceiver, a thief. Lord, one of them that would sabotage you. One of them, God, that Lord would Satan had pierced his heart. God, I, I pray though you'd help us today to realize and know we've been left here by God, by you, by our Savior, and we have our orders, and Lord, we the leaflets fall around us all the time. I, no need to go every Sunday is what some of them say, Lord. We know that. God, we read them sometimes that, that tells us all kinds of things about how we can quit or slack off, Lord. And we're tempted to because sometimes it's harsh. Sometimes it's lonely. But I pray for your grace and your strength, God. I pray you'd help us to be the people you'd have us be. Help us to love like we've been loved. Serve like we've been served, God. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.